Welcome to day 42, the final episode of Crikey's Election Cast. It's Sunday, the 22nd of May. I'm Cam Wilson. After a long and pretty stale election campaign, we got the election night that we deserved. Not long after the polls closed, it became obvious that the theme of last night was change. A change in government, a changing electorate, and a changing sense of what is possible in the Australian political landscape. Earlier today, we did a big wrap-up with Crikey's audience editor Imogen Champagne talking to Kishore Napier-Rahman, Amber Schultz, Bernard Keane, and Charlie Lewis about a remarkable election result. All right, let's get stuck straight into it. Kishore Napier-Rahman, welcome back to Election Cast. And out of 10, how happy are you that this is finally over? Well, it's not finally over for me because I haven't slept very much, (laughs) but uh, I'm keen to do that at some point. Yeah, look, relieved. Last night was a long night after a long campaign, but it looks like everything's finally wound up. Lovely. Yeah, I bet you're excited to get some hours in. Kishore, this wasn't a particularly emphatic victory for Labor, but the coalition have been absolutely hammered. Who won where and what does this mean for the country and the next parliament? You're right. Not emphatic for Labor. At this point, they're probably on track to scrape their way to a narrow majority. They finished up on about 72 seats overnight and they're leading in about seven. So that would put them over the line for Anthony Albanese to form majority in his own right. At the same time, this was a huge sort of victory for broader progressives in Australia. So the Greens picking up two more extra seats in Brisbane off the LNP, which is a huge result for them. And obviously the Teal Wave, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot over the course of this episode, winning all over the country. But yeah, a bloodbath for the Liberal Party. They are on track to finish on about 55, 56 seats, which is their worst electoral performance since 1983. Um, so that, that's just how bad it's been for them. They've lost seats to the Teals in their heartland, places like Kuyong, Higgin, uh, sorry, Higgins went to Labor, Kuyong, um, Wentworth, all gone to independence. They lost seats to Labor in Sydney and Melbourne. They've been decimated in all the capital cities in Australia, a really devastating result for the Liberal Party. And it leaves the party shorn of its moderate wing at a federal mm. level, bitterly divided and, and really with a long way to come back here. But, you know, let's not sort of gloss over the fact that Labor will form the next government. Anthony Albanese has won that election. And while it wasn't necessarily the big pro-Labor swing that they might have wanted to see, it's a pretty strong victory and a pretty big indictment of an electorate that is sick and tired of the Morrison government. Yeah, absolutely. And Kishore, you wrote about this today, but with the huge success of Teal Independence and the Greens, just how important was climate change an issue that both major parties were trying very hard to avoid in the campaign? How important was it to this election? Well, climate was almost sort of left off the agenda if you just looked at sort of what Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese were doing and saying, you know, they didn't want to talk about it all that much because it's been politically a kind of divisive issue for both those parties, for Labor trying to kind of keep people in the regions and coal communities on side, for the, the coalition where they're trying to thread that needle between the sort of urban moderate held seats and the nationals who are just totally in the pocket of coal. Out in the rest of the country, I mean, this was the climate election. You saw the Greens making huge gains in Brisbane. People are like, oh, Queensland, that's meant to be really conservative and backward. But, you know, people in Brisbane have had floodwaters lapping at their doorsteps, right? They are on the coalface of the climate crisis. It should not come as a surprise that they voted emphatically for greater action on climate change. And, of course, climate was the galvanising force behind the teal independence, right? 
These are parts of the country that are traditionally, you know, vote strongly for the Liberal Party. But there was always this feeling that Liberals were not moving hard enough on climate change. They, they saw Scott Morrison's net zero plan for the kind of fig leaf that it really was. And overwhelmingly, that was the kind of force that really built that teal momentum. And, and you know, they've been punished for that. That, that is what that and integrity is what drew all those voters to the independence. So, you know, climate's been such a potent force in Australian politics. We sometimes forget this. You know, 2019, the sort of anti-shortened backlash was driven about by fear over what he'd do to the coal industry. And even, you know, Malcolm Turnbull twice lost the leadership because of, in part because of divisions over climate in his party. Yesterday, the Australian electorate really showed what they want, I think, on climate. You know, overwhelmingly, this was a vote for more action on climate change. And, you know, that's going to lead to a very interesting sort of three years ahead because the teal independents, you know, they have called for more aggressive targets than than Labor. Yeah, absolutely. Kishore, speaking of Labor, a big story last night and one that I don't think for you was very surprising was Christina Keneally not winning the seat of Fowler. Could you quickly talk us through what happened there and what went wrong? Well, look, Fowler was controversial from the outset. Christina Keneally, a resident of Scotland Island and Sydney's northern beaches, uh, an elite gated community, was parachuted into Fowler in Sydney's southwest, one of the most diverse multicultural parts of the city, of the country, in fact, at the expense of Tu Lee, a Vietnamese-Australian candidate, right on the sort of very day the election was called, Dai Lee, a former Liberal, a Vietnamese-Australian independent, puts her hand up as an independent, runs this sort of strong campaign based on backlash against Keneally's parachuting in, and maybe not a great surprise, Dai Lee is going to win that seat, and, and that has sort of dented Labor's popes of forming majority. So, look, you know, that should lead to recriminations within Labor about pre-selections about cultural diversity. I do want to add one note, though. I think this election will actually really boost the the numbers of of people from non-European backgrounds in Parliament, of people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So, you know, that is a good thing to see that happen on on the Labor side. But, you know, they're going to learn some really, really hard lessons about parachuting in Christina Keneally, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Kishore, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Imogen. Hopefully get to nap soon. Yeah, hopefully. And I also just wanted to say a big public goodbye to Kishore, who's leaving Crikey. This is his last day. We're going to miss him. Our readers are going to miss him. So thank you for the last several years at Crikey, Kishore. Thanks so much, Imogen. I'll try not to get too emotional. Um, There's no better way to finish than with the the marathon of an election campaign. Um, And yeah, thank you everyone for reading and tuning in over the last little while. It's been a blast. Thanks, Kishore. Welcome back to Election Cast, Amber. How are you feeling on this bright and sunny post-election day? Look, relieved that it's over. That's about all I can say. <laughs> yeah, that's the general the general theme from everyone I'm hearing. Today. Yeah, it was it was exciting exciting to watch. A boring sort of six week campaign compared to others, but um, an exciting night in the end. Yeah, absolutely, Amber. You spent some time in this election traveling across the bushfire affected areas in New South Wales, mm-hmm. focusing on the marginal seats of Hughes and Gilmore, and my own electorate of Eden Monero. Why were these the seats the seats to watch? And did the results surprise you? Yeah, so these seats were really interesting because, you know, they have been ravaged by fires, by floods. Um, the rebuild in a lot of these areas has been slow, causing housing prices to shoot up. Um, across COVID, we did see a lot of people from the city move into some of these regions, again, causing housing prices to, to skyrocket, really affecting the local communities. Um, so it was really interesting to see uh, exactly how that would pay into politics. Uh, so in Hughes, we had independent Georgia 
Steele, who is a, a local lawyer, um, come out, you know, really swinging. She raised $610,000 and had 400 volunteers working for her. Um, and early in the campaign, it, it really seemed like she had a, a pretty good chance of, of taking the seat. She just had so much local support. So, you know, we, we did sort of think that she she would be able to take the seat uh, off Labor and, and instill an independent candidate in there. But in the end, she didn't do as well as expected. She scored just 15 percent of the vote uh, with that number not moving all night. Um, and, and despite Craig Kelly, sorry, it wasn't Labor, it's, it's been a Liberal seat. Despite Craig Kelly leaving the Liberal Party and another Liberal having to be brought in, which is Jenny Ware, um, she managed to retain the seat, which I think surprised um, a lot of people. Uh, Downing Gilmore, uh, Labor MP Fiona Phillips, has been really popular um, across the region. Uh, but Andrew Constance, who is the former New South Wales Treasurer, um, came through and decided to switch to federal politics uh, and is really, again, quite popular, quite a favourite. Uh, and you, the election hasn't been called yet in that region, still very, very uh, neck to neck with the Liberals leading by just 1.6%. So that was really interesting to see, again, if we'd see a flip from Labor to Liberal, and it seems like there's a high chance of, of that happening. And then finally, in Eden Monaro, uh, the Liberals were really punished uh, uh, later last year because of their lack of response to the bushfires and the bigger by-election. Uh, with a with a heavy swing, heavy support for Labor, um, they parachuted Jerry Knuckles uh, as a Liberal candidate there, who was a former Navy member, has worked at World Vision, a pretty impressive career, uh, hoping he'd make a splash. But um, there are allegations he doesn't live in the region; he actually lives in Canberra, uh, and his family has no intention of relocating. Uh, so it was a lot of bad press, uh, and it's been a pretty strong swing with Labor retaining the seat uh, with eight point four percent. Uh, but, you know, what has been really interesting is seeing this swing away from the major parties. You know, the Liberals are really seen as not doing enough, not giving the region enough support, um, not just from the fires, but the ongoing impacts of the fires. Uh, but that doesn't mean people decided Labor were were the ones to go with. We saw um, a lot of support for One Nation candidates, despite the fact uh, no one knows what they look like. They were sort of last minute additions and haven't done any campaigning at all. Um, there's also a surprising amount of support for uh, the United Australian Party and, again, more support for the Greens and Independents. So it seems like people are still keen to punish or move away from the major parties um, and, and are just fed up with politics. Yeah. Amber, the Coalition has been accused of ignoring women across this, this election campaign. You believe this was key to their downfall. What more could the Morrison government have done to appeal to female voters, which, you know, make up a little bit more than half of Australia's population? Um, literally anything. Literally anything. I mean, uh, this is, yeah, I mean, professional women are the biggest voting cohort in this election. You know, they overtake um, tradies. Uh, and to just sort of not address them, and, and this is Labor as well, they did better at, you know, appealing directly to, to women voters, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as much as I think I expected. Um, but the coalition and particularly Scott Morrison just absolutely ignored women, you know, and, and women voters for the Liberals, for the coalition has been an issue for a really long time. In the 2019 election, uh, just 35 percent of uh, women uh, voted for the coalition for the Liberals, which is 10 uh, percent less than men. So they weren't resonating with women. And then, of course, we had three years of allegations of sexual violence, parliamentary reckoning, um, the Me Too movement, Kate Jenkins, multiple reports, 
Uh, and Scott Morrison just really uh, screwing up every single chance he got to address any of these issues, you know, uh, referring to, to Jenny and his girls when discussing rape, um, you know, the alleged cover-up of, of Brittany Higgins' allegations, just time and time again. He, along with every other parliamentarian, had to undergo uh, workplace respectful training, um, but it really doesn't seem like this made a dent or paid off, you know, um, across the election campaign campaign. Uh, Health healthcare workers, frontline staff, again, majoritively women, weren't mentioned once, um, despite the huge role they played uh, across COVID. Uh, there were no direct appeal to women uh, in Morrison's thank you speech. He um, thanked the Defence Force. Uh, he didn't even thank, again, any female-dominated industries. So they were just utterly ignored and left out. And again, this is the biggest cohort of voters. It's just absolutely absurd that this would be such an oversight or perhaps you know, um, not absurd, but a deliberate tactic because Morrison just has no idea how to appeal to women and knew, quite frankly, that he couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you can see the result in that today. Amber, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you are also able to catch up with a little bit of sleep over the next couple of days. Thanks, Imogen. I'd like to bring in politics editor Bernard Keane now. Bernard, welcome back to Election Cast for our final edition. How is your election night? Um, oh, it was pretty enjoyable. I mean, Watching that uh, that disruptive moment that we saw last night with uh, with the Teal Independence, and I was on the on Ground Zero, I guess, or one of one of several Ground Zeros, uh, being at the at the the Kylie Tink event in North Sydney. Um, it's uh, it did really feel like seeing some political history in action. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, it was a good feeling. I'm sure it was, watching the teal bath fill up or roll in or whatever the metaphor extends to from there. Um, Bernard, you've been a very close observer of both major parties' campaigns this election. How did the respective campaign strategies play out for both sides? Well, clearly Labor's strategy played out uh, significantly better than the government's. Uh, Labor's strategy really was, and it's one that they determined, I think, quite some time ago, long, long before the election was called, and that was to make Scott Morrison uh, the, the central issue of the campaign and they succeeded in that um they learned their lesson from 2019 um that was an election when they wanted to make not necessarily scott morrison but the liberal government the issue um and instead gave voters a reason not to turn to them i.e people were very unhappy with the uh, with the liberal government back then because of the what's been happening with the leadership but they were too scared to vote for Bill Shorten. And one of the reasons they were too scared is because uh, Scott Morrison made sure that they didn't. So they addressed that issue early on by uh, completely avoiding any possibility of, uh, of controversial policies and assiduously avoiding giving people any sort of reason not to turn to Labor in disgust. But they really did have to make Scott Morrison the, you know, the, the, you know, the big turnoff that he ended up proving to be. And part of that, I think, was um, was outside their control. Part of that was to do with Scott Morrison and his political personality. He's, he made deliberate choices about his conduct over the last three years that I think alienated a lot of voters. But it took, you know, Labor had a had a role to play in that, in relentlessly focusing on that, in crafting a narrative of Scott Morrison as uh, incompetent, as someone who doesn't take responsibility. And that in particular, that, that whole, you know, that, that ad where he says, that's not my job, that's not my job, the constant references to not holding a hose, mate, 
you know, that was really crucial in terms of basically creating a perception of Scott Morrison that um, uh, that they could then campaign against. And I think they did that um, very, very successfully. I mean, there's a lot of truth to that cliche. They're one of the, you know, they're one of the great election cliches, which is that governments, sorry, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. Um, but, you know, for a government to lose an election, they need, you know, a bit of help from the opposition. And I think the, the Labor did, uh, you know, did the, you know, the, enough to make sure that, um, that that visceral dislike of Scott Morrison that was in the electorate really did translate into uh, a vote for them. Scott Morrison's campaign tactics were pretty much drawn from the same playbook that he used in 2019 and the same playbook that uh, the right has been using in elections uh, in other countries, particularly in the UK and to an extent uh, with the Republicans in the US as well. It's a, it's a pretty you know, well-established and uh, well-honed set of tactics involving uh, demonising your opponent, using basically trying to bribe the, the, the most appropriate demographics that are going to deliver you, deliver you the most election outcome, and, of course, working closely with um, News Corp and, um, and other uh, or, and, and tame journalists in the media and coordinating very closely with them in terms of delivering both positive and negative um, messages. And it just didn't seem to work anywhere near as well throughout the campaign. And a lot of that, of course, had to do with the relentlessly negative uh, perceptions of Scott Morrison right through, right through the electorate and the fact that Labor gave Morrison and the Liberals very little uh, to work with. Um, but if we step back from the campaign itself, when we look at what happened over the course of that during the polls, uh, sorry, if it was what, what happened in the polls during the course of the campaign, it's actually pretty interesting because the Liberal Party vote or the coalition vote in the polls didn't shift right throughout the whole election campaign. It basically mm-hmm. stayed about 34, 35%, which is you know, broadly where it ended up. Um, Labor's vote um, waxed and waned during the campaign. It increased uh, in the middle of the campaign after an you know, early stumble from Anthony Albanese, and then it sort of got it pulled back to earth in the last stages of, of the campaign, which you know, might end up costing Labor um, majority government. But the story of the campaign really is not much happened in terms of shifting voter sentiment. Um, you know, we ended up with a result that, um, in terms of overall two-party preferred, you know, I think we might have got on, you know, if we held the election in the first week of the campaign. So an awful lot of money, tens and hundreds in the case of, of if you add in Clyde Palmer's money, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent and it's actually not shifted uh, voting sentiment uh, a great deal at all. And that points to, I think, you know, the, the core issue of the campaign, uh, which is the visceral dislike of, of Scott Morrison. So in a sense... All those campaign tactics were just spin-offs from the basic fact that could Labor make sure that they, uh, they, they got voters to turn off to Scott Morrison and could he do anything to prevent that? And as it turned out, no, he couldn't. No. And Bernard, last night you described the results, uh, in particular I think with the, the, so many Teal candidates getting up as a political earthquake. What do you think that the results reveal about the electorate? I think it shows we've got a very polarised electorate. I mean, the 2019 result showed a great deal of polarisation. I mean, the Labor result in Victoria, um, and by the way, isn't it funny that every, each time we, we sort of seem to say, look, Labor's voters peaked in Victoria. 
um, they can't possibly get any more seats. And then, lo and behold, they end up picking up more seats. Um, but if you compare Victoria and Queensland in the 2019 election, I mean, it's quite remarkable polarisation. Queensland swung to the coalition, swung to you know, small right-wing parties um, and certainly away from Labor, whereas you know, Labor uh, got a very, very high primary vote and strong two-party preferred vote in, in Victoria. So back then there was a, you know, a strong degree of geographical polarisation going on in the electorate. And that's not surprising given look at you know, Australia's federation of multiple states and territories. So you, you expect some sort of geographical polarisation in any sort of um, country. But what we've seen in this election is a much more profound polarisation, I think, between uh, electorates held by both sides in urban areas, affluent urban electorates, which want urgent and substantial action on climate change, and uh, you know, suburban, regional, outer suburban and regional electorates where uh, it's not a high priority. And even in some cases, climate action is perceived as a threat. Now, you know, what we've seen is both major parties unable to hold their urban electorates. Labor's lost uh, urban seats to the Greens. The Liberals obviously have lost a, a, a slate of, of seats to the Teal Independents. And that's telling us something that, that you know, I think the mainstream, the major parties will, will be deeply uncomfortable with, which is their efforts to kind of straddle a variety of positions on a, a key issue like climate change is driving uh, affluent, well-educated uh, urban voters away to minor parties and to independents. So, you know, the, 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 the phrase broad church is one that's always applied to the Liberals, but you know, it applies to both major parties. Both major parties are made up of quite diverse sort of ideological and geographical representatives, and they, they find various ways to deal with that. But what's happening, I think, in both parties, but particularly, of course, this time around in the Liberals, is a really fundamental fracturing in the capacity of parties to actually maintain that kind of broad church position on a fundamental issue. You know, if you've got, if you've got voters, in, if you've got voters in, in urban electorate saying, we will not accept anything less than rapid and serious action on uh, climate change, and you've got voters in uh, suburban Australia saying, it is totally not a priority for us, we're focused on cost of living, we're focused on the economy, we're focused on jobs, then it is enormously difficult for either party to hold both of those positions at the same time. And that kind of polarisation, I think, is going to be an increasing factor uh, in our politics unless we do find a way to get everyone really on the same page in terms of climate and climate action and how it can be good for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be obviously something that we'll be keeping a close eye on over the next couple of years or many, many years. Thank you so much for your time today, Bernard. That was our politics editor, Bernard Keane. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to our final edition of Election Cast after six weeks of the election campaign. And now I'm going to bring in the man who is a couple of hours behind most of us. Good morning and welcome back to Election Cast, Charlie Lewis. Uh, good morning, Imogen. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Several um, hours behind, I think, in terms of my brain power, anyway. <laughs> um, what's the mood in WA right now, Charlie? Walking around the streets, what are they saying? 
Well, um, I mean, God, it was it was an incredible. Um, I think one of the th- one of the overriding factors uh, in my time here, talking to people, whatever their political persuasion was. Well, there was a very telling anecdote at the event I was at last night, which was the um, the Labour Party event in Midland for the seat of Hasluck. One of the uh, volunteers said to me, "The thing is, is that we have people here who have voted in elections and 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 had had the election called by the time they get home from the polling booth." I.e., they have felt that they have absolutely had no impact on the result of of the election, uh, and this time around, obviously, that wasn't the case. WA was always going to play quite a big role, w- deciding whether whether who was going to form government. And I think there was a lot of excitement in WA just just to be invited to the party for once, you know, <laughs> that uh, that they could really really make an impact. I don't think anyone was quite predicting just how seismic that impact would end up being. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, WA delivered some seriously key seats for Labor last night. What I mean, what what happened in <laughs> WA? Can you give us a quick run through it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so at the outset, I mean, as I say, it was it was a, a pretty unbelievable result over here for the Labor Party. At the outset, uh, when I first came here, everyone I was talking to was saying that there are there are three seats that are really like primary targets for the Labour Party in Western Australia, and that was uh, Swan, which was held on a fairly tight margin, been held for a long time on a tight margin by uh, Liberal Steve Irons, who was retiring at this election. So they had a new candidate coming in there, Christine McSweeney. Um, there was Pierce, which was held previously by former Attorney General Christian Porter, who obviously had to, um, who also retired. Um, in, de, in quite messy and slow and difficult circumstances for the Liberal Party, uh, that was also the other thing. The other big factor there was that the that Pierce went through a a huge, almost unrecognisable redistribution, uh, where it was pared down. It took all of its um, regional uh, portions off and was now just centred on the northern suburbs, centred around the city of Wanneroo. The Labour Party put up as their candidate um, the longtime mayor of, of the city of Wanneroo, uh, Tracy Roberts. And on the outer limits of so, they, so the, the the sense was that they were always fairly comfortable or fairly confident the Labour Party that 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 those seats were really in play and that they might well be able to get them. And also there was also the sense that if they can't get them, then then they're kind of out of the running for the election in general. At the at the sort of more outer limits of of the Labour Party um, ambition was the seat of Hasluck, uh, sort of centred around the Perth Hills. That was held um, by quite a popular local member in Ken Wyatt, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, uh, and, and at a reasonably safe uh, distance. They had a 5.9% uh, margin to the Liberal Party there. Um, it was always considered that that would be a sign of a really good night if they could pick up all those three seats. As it happened, they picked all three up at a canter, and it didn't stop there. I mean, no one I was speaking to ever mentioned the seat of Tagney, which is held by Ben Morton, a right-hand man of the of former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Um, but that suddenly had a huge, I think, 12% uh, swing. So that got, that got taken. That was a safe seat previously. Um, the seat of Moore, held by Ian Goodenough, another generally safe seat for the Liberal Party, is now um, still in doubt. Uh, even Canning, held by Andrew Hastie, is is it probably going to stay with the Liberals, but at a, a quite a marginal rate. So uh, it was, I mean, a catastrophic result for the Liberal Party in WA, uh, and that 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 sort of lands on a, on a few different levels because. Obviously, it's always bad to lose seats, but for the longest time since this is the first time since the time of Bob Hawke 
that the Labour Party will have more lower house seats than the Liberal Party in um, in Western Australia. So that's that's thirty years of uh, of domination of this state from the Liberal Party. And there's a lot of factors that go into that, I suppose. Um, the Liberal Party over the last couple of years had a huge exodus of quite high profile uh, members of Parliament um, over here. So they lost former Finance Minister Matthias Cormann, who went to the OECD. Uh, Julie Bishop, who holds the seat of Curtin, um, or held the seat of Curtin for the longest time, and made that the safest seat I think the Liberal Party had, certainly in the state. It may even have been in the country. Uh, she left and did not play any role m- much at all in this this current election, uh, and that was noted by by Liberal Party uh, watchers that that Bishop didn't appear to have any particular interest in how this one turned out. And eventually, she actually did come out and say, "I think it'd be an interesting sort of uh, occasion for some self reflection in the Liberal Party if we end up losing the seat of Curtin, which which also looks possible." Um, so, and and of course, Linda Reynolds, the, another minister from WA, was a quite a diminished figure after the the Brittany Higgins. Um, that, that took up so much of 2021. Um, so there's a lot of, um, yeah, a big, a big exodus of, 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 of talent and fundraising talent and high-profile name recognition from the Liberal Party. And obviously, then the other factor is what role Scott Morrison played in all of this. Uh, obviously, he... Uh, the the incredible popularity of Premier Mark McGowan um, in WA in many ways comes down to the the hard border that that he Im- imposed on the state, which kept COVID out for such a long time. Obviously, Clive Palmer tried to sue to bring that 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 hard border down, and for the the early stages of that, um, the Liberal government backed that. Now that can't have uh, gone unnoticed over here, and I think that might have ended up playing a a really big role in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um- Charlie, as you said, catastrophic results for the Liberal Party. What do the results mean for both major parties going forward? Well, I mean, for the for the Liberal Party, it is just um, it's it's gone from being a um, this is the second sort of catastrophic result for them in the West in two years. It's gone from being a, a Liberal Party stronghold to kind of a, a, a graveyard of ambition for them. They they obviously were completely wiped out in the twenty twenty one state election by by Mark McGowan. They they were reduced to two seats in the lower house there, um, and as as we was just saying, they've now had. Um, uh, several seats that weren't really even considered to be in play wiped out by the the massive ten percent or so swing towards the Labour Party in in this state. I mean, that, and, and and by the way, this is working from such a low base for the Labour Party. The Labour Party didn't crack a thirty percent primary vote last time out, and, and in, in some ways that was actually kind of their secret weapon is that they didn't need a swing this big to get the seats that they were they're aiming for. They they got the seats they were aiming for and and quite a bit more. In terms of the Labour Party, I think it'll be really really fast. Fascinating to see how the relationship between Mark McGowan and Anthony Albanese kind of plays out. I think the the WA against the world um, angle the, that 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 pitch to voters at a state level is always very very popular, and I think it really did a lot for Mark McGowan's standing in the state to to have that kind of. Um, that kind of uh, slight acrimony between him and the federal government in terms of the 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 the, the, the hard border being up, getting a lot of criticism from a federal li- liberal government on that front. I think that did uh, Mark McGowan a great deal of of good. It'll be interesting to see um, if if he maintains a little bit of that posture with a liberal with a Labour government at the federal level. We definitely did see that previously. Um, the, the 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 premier of Western Australia before Mark McGowan was was Liberal Colin Barnett, and he would occasionally take quite big stands against the federal government, even when it was a liberal government, because it plays quite well over here. So it might not end up being the quite the chummy um, relationship that we might expect, but it'll be very interesting to watch either way. 
Absolutely. And we'll be keeping an eye on it at Crikey. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Okay, I think we're going to leave it here for today. Thank you so much to everyone who joined us. That was Kishore, Napier Rahman, Amber Schultz, Bernard Keane, and Charlie Lewis. I imagine they're all going to be off to get a little bit of sleep before we crack on into the next week tomorrow. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this edition, you can find it up on crikey.com.au later this afternoon. Or you can find this and past editions up on our podcast platform of choice. And Crikey's paywall is down for the rest of the day. So jump in, read everyone's articles. It's some really great stuff. Enjoy the, uh, the after effects of this election. And I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's joined us for election cast today and over the past six weeks. We've had a lot of fun doing this at Crikey and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as well. We're looking forward to sharing some more of Crikey's independent insights with you in some different audio formats sometime soon, so do stay tuned. Thank you again, everybody. I'm Imogen Champagne. Goodbye. That was Charlie Lewis finishing up talking to Imogen Champagne with Bernard Keane, Amber Schultz, and Kishore Napier-Rahman just before. Thank you all so, so much for listening to Crikey's Election Cast. It has been such a pleasure of ours to be able to go through this experience, this election with you all. It is bittersweet as it is our last episode, but I can confidently say, due to the very warm response we've gotten from our audience, we are going to keep doing some kind of podcast in the future, so keep your eyes on this feed. Thank you to all the hosts and guests who appeared, to Jack Khalil for his tireless production work, and of course, to you all for listening. We'll be back in your ears in some form sooner rather than later, but until then, I'm Cam Wilson, bye for now.